You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Studio 89.7. This talk program focuses on newsmakers, celebrities, and authors. And now, here's your host, Philadelphia radio veteran, Paul Perello. Imagine, if you will, a a world where there's a private state-of-the-art lab funded by a pharmaceutical giant employing two brilliantly talented young bioengineers and uh, they combine genetic components from different species into hybrids that could produce new disease-fighting compounds. It's vital, it's exciting, it's the future, and it's the premise for a new movie, Splice. And we are fortunate enough to have with us uh, director Vincenzo Natale. Did I get the last name right? Exactly right. All right, Vincenzo, welcome to Philadelphia. Oh, thank you, thank you. You know that uh, that intro that I just uh, that I just mentioned. Part of me wants to say, okay, it's just purely fiction. But I'm thinking somewhere on this planet there are probably more than two bioscientists uh, working up a scheme like that. So I really enjoyed the movie Splice. It is uh, very relevant. It's going to keep you on the edge of your seat, no doubt about it. Where did you come up with this with this idea for this movie? Uh, well, it was inspired uh, by a mouse, a of mouse. all things. It's very strange. But it was a unique mouse because this mouse appeared to have a human ear growing out of its back. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was called the Vacanti mouse. And it was an actual experiment that was done at MIT. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't, in the strictest sense, a genetic experiment, but it looked like one. And it was a really—it was such a shocking image. I, I felt intuitively that there was a movie in this mouse, and um, that was 15 years ago. Hmm. So it's taken a long time to get the film made. But the amazing thing is that in that time, the real science has evolved exponentially to the point where, when I started to shoot the film, they actually legalized the creation of animal-human hybrids. In the UK. So, how does one then, when you decide you're going to make a movie on this very subject, but science begins to outpace the movie making, how do you keep it relevant as you go into the final phase of even making the movie, actually filming the movie? Because you don't want to, you don't want to have a uh, an end product that is going to be antiquated by weeks, months, or let alone years. So, how did you stay in front of all that? Oh, listen, I was worried that it would, it would that our film would be eclipsed by reality. And um, as it turned out, it ended up helping us because when I started working on the film, people weren't really talking about this stuff. Um, by the time I was really looking for money, it was on the tip of everybody's tongue. Mm-hmm. And it became um, it was really in the popular consciousness. and I think I think that's why splice happened when it when it did happen. But um, you know, if, if I started shooting it now, who knows by the time it, was actually by the time it would actually be finished, perhaps um, there would be a real Dren, which is the name of our creature, out in the real world. Yeah, the result of this uh, experiment that takes place uh, in the labs is Dren, an amazing, strangely beautiful creature of uncommon intelligence and an array of unexpected uh, unexpected physical developments. You got to wonder how much Vincenzo you uh, pushed the envelope and how much you really had to hold back because you know because. I hate labels or whatever, but we put this in the science fiction genre, if you will. You know, you pretty have pretty much have free reign to do whatever you want. You could create any type of creature, any type of character that you want, but yet you got to make it believable. You have to make it credible. How did you temper the, uh, I guess, the 
tendency to to go so far over the edge but yet keep it so real that it was going to have an amount of credibility to it. Well, that's just it. I, <clears throat> in creating Dren, I always used real life as a reference. And, and in researching the film, I decided that it was better to make the science in the movie closer to reality rather than to do a kind of inflated Hollywood version of, of what a genetic lab would be like. And, uh, and the reason is very simple. Truth is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. And once you start to delve into that world, you realize how truly bizarre life is and how incredible and um, outrageous um, the science is. It's a really fascinating field. And uh, I didn't have to look afar from what's out there to, you know, conjure something like Dren. Um, I think when you look at the history of movie monsters, and I, I can say this as somebody who's, you know, a great aficionado of these sorts of films, movie monsters tend to be very Baroque. Mm-hmm. They, take, they tend to take the human form and add things on top of it. And, and my sense with this film was it would be better to be subtractive, to pull, it would be more shocking, in fact, to pull things away from the human form and to make subtle changes rather than big changes and, um, and also more believable. So, uh, so that was really the prime directive in designing the film and uh, designing the creature and, and making the film. You mentioned truth sometimes is stranger than, than fiction. And there's another storyline that actually takes place in this. I don't want to make it seem like the movie is only about this uh, DNA um, hybrid that uh, takes pretty much center stage, but then there's a subplot that goes on underneath between the two main characters, Clive and Elsa. Clive played by Academy Award winner uh, Adrian Brody and Elsa played by uh, Sarah Polly. Fact of the matter, Elsa's character is is a woman who is very much driven as a scientist. Uh, She really wants to push the envelope. But we also see that a lot of, although she's a very cold character, she's very, um, I don't know if reserved is the right way, in in terms of knowing her personally, she -hmm. doesn't let that much of her guard down about her past. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there's a scene where she goes back to her home and she goes into her old bedroom in which uh, Adrian Brody's character, Clive, says, uh, I thought you said your mother left the house the way, you know, the room the way that it was. And we see that the room is pretty much in deplorable condition. So you can only imagine the type of childhood that Elsa then had. And yet, even though Elsa is a scientist who is committed to this experiment, she then becomes the mother figure for Dren. And you, she takes on, I guess, what her mother probably did to her, Elsa, as when Elsa was a child. Yeah, it really is a case of history repeating itself. Yeah. And and in Elsa's uh, story, we learn that she Clive wants to have a child, but she doesn't. Mm-hmm. She's not prepared to do that right now. And and as time goes on and we learn more about her as a character, we begin to understand that possibly it has to do with her own childhood mm-hmm. because she had um, an abusive mother and she's probably afraid of what she would be like as a mother. So on some unconscious level, I think, <clears throat> she does this experiment partly to create a child that she can control, mm-hmm. where, where there is this sort of division, the scientific uh, so-called objectivity between her and her experiment. But of course, that immediately um, melts away as soon as she sees this thing and she kind of falls in love with it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I sort of half-jokingly describe Splice as my family film. <laughs> 
Yeah, I see the uh, the, the mark going down the, the top of your head to the front of your face. Yeah, that's an inside joke. you got to see the movie to understand what we're talking about here. This has been getting pretty much uh, great reviews, no matter where you look, no matter what you read. A lot of people have, uh, have gotten behind the project. Of course, when you have, uh, as I said before, Adrian Brody in, in one of the lead roles, and then uh, Guillermo del Toro as one of your uh, executive producers, I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about two of the elite of elites in, in Hollywood behind your project. How were you able to attract the two of them to the project? I mean, do you pick up the phone one day and, and call Adrian Brody, or uh, do you, uh, you know, reach out via email to Del Toro and say, I have this great idea. Would you be interested in being the executive producer on this project? I think, you know, it's just the weirdos sort of find each other. <laughs> are because... you, who, who are you calling the weirdo now? Oh, they're all weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> Me, Guillermo, and Adrian. And I, I mean that in, in their case in the best possible way. You know, I, I met um, Guillermo at a film festival, and he said uh, he expressed an interest in producing for me, which was very exciting because mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan. And uh, I immediately thought of Splice, which was this project had, which had been sitting on my, um, in my office gathering dust. Um, because I felt intuitively that given the nature of his films and his sort of love of, of monsters and creatures that, that he would connect with it. And, and he did. So Guillermo was one piece of the puzzle and he um, very generously lent us his name and kind of in doing so legitimized me and the project. And, and then when it came to Adrian, it was simply a matter of um, going to his agents and, you know, we went through all the right channels um, and uh, he just responded to the script. I think both to his credit and Sarah. Polly's credit, they responded to everything that is dangerous in the script, because while this is a Frankenstein-type story, I think it goes much further than any film like that has before in the past. There is a, a kind of sexual component to it, and mm-hmm. um, and a kind of transgressive, subversive component to it that I think would have uh, actually scared a lot of actors of Adrian's stature because it's a you know risky thing he did. But um, but in his case and Sarah's case, I think they were drawn to the movie because it was dangerous. Um, so uh, yeah, that's how it happened. It was it was actually that side of the production was very easy. What was hard about the movie was raising the money mm-hmm. first and foremost, as it often is, and then finding a distributor because when we finished the film, we finished it at the worst time ever to sell an independent film to the United States because this movie was made as a Canada-France co-production outside of the system. Um, and we needed to find a U.S. distributor, but the economy had collapsed. The film industry itself was going through its own set of issues. The two companies that did want to distribute our film went out of business. I mean, it was just sort of one catastrophe after another. Sure. Ultimately, I think everything had to go wrong in order for it to go right. And, and we had the very great fortune of uh, being accepted to Sundance, and Joel Silver saw the film there and, and bought it through his label, Dark Castle, for Warner Brothers. So by some miracle, and I truly mean a miracle, it's very rare that this kind of thing happens. We're talking with uh, director uh, Vincenzo Natale, who has been working on this project's place for a number of years. It now gets to see the light of uh, of a projector and a movie screen. You, you referred to it as um, a Frankenstein, Frankenstein story. We could call it a modern-day Frankenstein story. Fact of the matter is, you know, when we look at the old Frankenstein movies, we say, that stuff could never happen. Absolutely, you know, you, you can't, you know, put two bolts on the guy, on the side of a, you know, of, of the neck of a guy who's been dead, and, you know, you invoke the power of electricity, and then the guy awakens and, you know, goes out, and, you know, uh, and you know the rest of the Frankenstein story. 
However, with this, as I said at the outset of our interview, while it's considered a Frankenstein story, somewhere, you know, this this type of experimentation is going on. I'm hard-pressed to believe that it's not. And as you said, there actually have been cases of, uh, I guess, human DNA um, uh, testing hybrids with with animals. So are you out to, and, and again, not to give too much away with the movie, I mean, were you out at the beginning to uh, make a statement about this? Are you out just to make a good movie? Or are you out to make a movie that is going to at least start the conversation about where science and 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 the world is going from this point forward. Uh, well, I definitely wasn't out to make an anti-genetic uh, engineering statement. That's for sure. Um, but I don't think you can do a film like this without it raising certain questions and without hopefully igniting conversation. And uh, my personal feeling is that we're going to go there. I mean, we have already, really. And uh, human beings from the very beginning have altered their environment, it only makes sense that once the technology exists, we're going to start to alter ourselves. And I'm not sure that that's such a bad thing. Um, in a way, I, like the characters in the film, sort of believe that it's in our DNA mm -hmm. to mess with our DNA. I think that's sort of what we're programmed to do. It just has to be done in a very responsible way. And I think where things go wrong for Clive and Elsa, unfortunately, is that they do this on the sly. They they are very intelligent young people, but they're not terribly mature mm -hmm. as individuals, and, and they make something that the world is not ready for. And, and so that's where things go wrong. And unlike a lot of Frankenstein-type films, really what this film becomes is about, not about a monster, but about how the human beings become monstrous. Mm -hmm. and, and really, Clive and Elsa, um, they, they imprison their creation. The monster doesn't escape. It doesn't wreak havoc in the outside world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's the human beings who end up um, hurting their creation, if somewhat inadvertently. So um, it's a more, it's a, we get into some, some very gray moral territory in this film, and, and, and I hope for that reason it you know, does sort of in, invite discussion. Uh, there's also a line, as uh, Elsa tells Clive, that it's their job as scientists to push the boundaries. And in this movie, uh, the boundaries are, are really pushed. And actually, they go over the edge. And it's really uh, the character of uh, Clive's brother who stands as a very uh, small uh, voice of reason in all this. Because, uh, I don't recall the brother's uh, name, the character's name, but he tells Clive, you know, why are you always giving in to her? Why can't you say no? And, uh, you know, even, you know, in, in the small role that he has, he does stand as that maybe lone voice that's out there oftentimes to say, uh, you need to you need to know your boundaries. You need to learn when to say no and, and, and when to move forward. Even though his, his role is very... Uh, small in the movie, small in that it's it's not one of the you know major characters. He is that voice of reason throughout the film. Right. No, that's so perceptive of you. I don't think anyone else has said that, but that's exactly what we intended him to be, because the film is very insular. There's mm -hmm. only five speaking parts in the whole movie, and really just a few major locations. Um, so it becomes kind of a chamber piece, mm -hmm. and it becomes um, very, we become very focused very much into the world of Clive and Elsa. There's not a lot of context, and the only outside context really is the company they work for, right. which is really amoral. Mm -hmm. They don't have a moral perspective on this. They're just looking at the bottom line, and they think that because at the beginning of the film, Clive and Elsa propose 
this experiment to them. They suggest adding human DNA into their work. And the company says no, because it's just going to, you know, cause controversy. And really all they want is to create these proteins for livestock, sure. um, for medicinal purposes for livestock. And uh, so they have an amoral point of view. And the only person who really has, I think, sort of speaks for humanity at large mm-hmm. f- from a moral perspective is the brother. Well, let's talk a little bit about you uh, growing up in Canada. Canada uh, has a great uh, movie production business, a great place for many movies to be made. Uh, a number of the American productions have moved up to, to make movies in, uh, in in Canada. But growing up in Canada, what were the influences on you? I mean, uh, were you a fan of the, uh, of the, of the horror genre? Uh, give me a little bit of perspective where you were coming from growing up in Canada. Sure. Well, I, I think part of the reason I'm so interested in fantasy is that my life is so dull. <laughs> I have like such an unexceptional life. And I think that the most interesting part of my life is my inner life is my was especially growing up was my imagination. So, um, so I think that's part of the reason, but I think it's in my DNA. Mm-hmm. I just is at my, at my, I mean, the first drawings I ever did were of monsters at, at a very early age. I was just drawn to this stuff and I don't even, I couldn't even explain to you why. Um, so I, I am a real aficionado of it. And I, uh, you know, I used to read Famous Monsters of Filmland. I don't know if you remember that magazine. No. Um, Sorry but, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wonderful... Actually, a lot of uh, filmmakers are very influenced by, like, Steven Spielberg and John Landis. That's why and, I'm on this side of the microphone, and that's why uh, you're, on, you're or, doing what you're doing, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. You can blame it on Famous Monsters of Filmland. But, uh, yeah, that was a world I was really fascinated by, and, and I think it's always been amazing to me how so many of those science fiction concepts that existed purely as fantasy when I was a kid are now coming to fruition. Mm-hmm. And you can see how there's a real dialogue between the science fiction world and the real science world. I mean, if you talk to most scientists in, in any field, really, I, th- I think you'll find a lot of science fiction fans. Mm. Yeah, I- I'm looking at you and you look like a pretty normal guy. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know I-, I don't see an ax murderer. I don't see a Dr. Frankenstein. I don't see, you know, a Hannibal Lecter. You, know, you-, you-, you seem like a-, a normal individual. Well, that's you know a lot of those the people you just described look pretty normal too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I well I don't think anyone's normal. Let me put it that way. I think everyone's you know got a, a monster lurking inside them, and that's really what my films are often about. Actually, yeah. much of this film is executed so perfectly because of the tremendous work of I guess computer generated images. You could have used an actress in the role of Dren from head to toe, but you chose to do some alterations because you had to because of the character that Dren was supposed to be, mm-hmm. which Dren is actually nerd backwards. So are you saying that many of these people that work in this <laughs> this field of DNA splicing are nerds? I mean, are you making some type of statement there or not? Or is it just a, a, a funny way, a subtle way to, 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 to put it out there? Well, it really comes from Clive and Elsa's lab right. because Clive and Elsa's lab is an acronym. It's nerd. Their lab is called nerd, but it's an acronym for nucleic nucleic exchange research and development right. and and but it's a very self-conscious thing because Clive and Elsa are nerds in the contemporary sense of a nerd in that they're so cool they're they're nerdy cool right and they know that they are and they re- they kind of revel in it and the amazing thing is that um, in my research for the film where I you know did visit a number of labs I found real Clive and Elsa's out there I mean the mean age in a lot of these labs is around 30 they're these are young hip people they're not 
they don't wear pocket protectors or you know <laughs> horn rim glasses or anything like that. It's not the the movie cliche, and uh, and so therefore um, they have you know they're enjoying life. They're they're youthful and um, and and then Elsa names. Uh, Dren after after their lab. The character that you brought to life via actress, live action, and oh, right. computer-generated okay. <laughs> images, so much so that, uh, you know, you could have given Dren uh, five fingers, you gave her four digits, you could have given her human legs to stand on, but gave her sort of these animal legs that would be reminiscent of, you know, maybe even dinosaur legs. It's executed so well that it becomes believable because sometimes with computer-generated figures like that, it just looks stagey, it looks stiff, it doesn't flow really well. Mm. So, you know, tremendous work behind the scenes. And then that puts the additional pressure on the actors then, as well as the actress who plays Dren, and then the other actors playing against that character because especially in the younger when Dren is small a baby they're probably working with green screen or they're working with a, a model as opposed to a a real figure so that puts a lot of I guess pressure on you then as a filmmaker to make sure that you execute those scenes uh, without missing a beat because you want it as real as possible oh yeah I mean if Dren doesn't work for you mm-hmm. if you don't fully believe that she's real in this film then the movie has failed it's that simple. And so uh, that was truly the challenge because this is an independent film. I mean, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a studio budget to make this movie with. And and therefore, it was a real tight high wire act because, sure. um, uh, you know, it, the film could easily have collapsed if if um, if Dren didn't work. And I, I simply didn't have the resources to um, – uh, I didn't have a safety net. So uh, – it's all about Dren, and thankfully, I just had an awesome team. I had a great group of both physical makeup effects artists, um, a, a very well-known company called KNB, and then some great digital effects companies. One company in Toronto called Core that I always work with, and, and two in France who are also excellent. And uh, and everybody worked together to create Dren. I think the the prime directive throughout this process was make her real, mm-hmm. and and in my mind. To do that, we, sh- we needed to be subtractive. We needed to, as opposed to, I think, the way a lot of movie creatures are created, which are quite Baroque, we didn't, I didn't want to add onto the human form. I actually really wanted to pull away from it. And I also operated under the belief that small changes mm-hmm. to a human being are actually more shocking for an audience than big ones. And, um, and so I think that's partly why she feels real. As much as I could, I tried to use real things, whether it be actors or puppets, or I always tried to have something there for the digital effects artists to refer right. to. And um, and I think that's often where digital effects go awry is when they're just, when the animators are working completely in a kind of virtual world, mm-hmm. it it's, loses its, its sense of veracity, like it's real, you know, um, uh, tactile quality. And, uh, you know, for instance, even if I had the money to do Dren as a fully digital character throughout the entire film, as they did in Avatar, I wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. I really, given the context of the film, because it's so intimate, I really felt like we needed a real actor for the film and also for the other actors. For, for you know, Adrian Brody and Sarah Pauly, it was important to me that they had a, a real performer in front of them and they weren't acting to, you know, a, a, a tennis ball on sure. a grip stand. And I guess the other thing that really gets me too is that using special effects, just because you have them, you feel like you gotta use them really diminishes, I guess, the impact or the effectiveness of a movie. Yeah, I mean, I think all of my films have done independent and quite low budget, um, but all of them have had a lot of effects work in them. I think 
in each case is although it's very challenging for me it, it always forces me to be smarter mm -hmm. the, if I have restrictions I'm inevitably more creative than I would be if I had a blank tech mm -hmm. blank check right so uh, uh, you know and in this case I kind of designed the film to be small I tried to keep the the number of actors small I tried to keep the number of locations small and we just put all of our resources into Dren. Mm. Uh, one final question about Dren is that uh, you chose not to give the character um, any hair. Um, and I thought at one point when she goes into the little box that Elsa actually had and had the uh, the tiara and the Barbie-like doll in there, I thought, for instance, there would have been a, a fake wig that she would have put on. But was there a reason? I mean, is it because she's comfortable enough and palatable enough to look at, but yet um, uncomfortable enough to still make us a little squeamish. But did you feel that if you would have given her hair, whether it was hair that grew on her head or hair that she would find in the barn or in that box and put on, blurs a little bit, you know, what is what is real and what isn't real? Was there a reason why she didn't have hair? Sure. Well, actually, there's a practical reason because to do the, we altered the actress's face mm -hmm. digitally. And if I had hair as part of the equation, it would have cost me double. <laughs> it would have been very expensive because hair is very complex, right, right. you know, fractal, complicated kind of stuff. And um, so it was much easier for us that she was bald. And then I think there was just aesthetically something very pleasing about it. Um, I think, frankly, bald women can be very beautiful. I would I would have to agree. So, uh, okay. See, so, yeah, sometimes I, I, I overanalyze movies. That's why my wife doesn't like to go to the movies with me because I wonder, why did he not you know, give her a and, and sometimes it just comes down to good old greenbacks. It's all about the money, right? That's what I, that's what I say. It's all about the money. Well, so uh, what's next for you then? Well, that's what I keep asking myself because, uh, you know, it's hard making movies right now. It's a very expensive medium. It has, always has been, but especially now, not only is it, expen is it expensive to make a film, but it's really expensive to release a film. Mm. And uh, if you want to release it on a, a, a big scale, and I think that's why you're seeing a lot of movies coming out of Hollywood that are what they call branded sure. material. And And the only problem with that is, Branded often in my mind means generic, mm -hmm. and 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 I've really based my entire career thus far on trying to do new things or trying to you know take something old and make it new and um, and so I have a few really really great projects but they are all challenging and um, one of them is an adaptation of a great they're all adaptations actually but one of them is an adaptation of a great J G Ballard novel mm -hmm. called High Rise J G Ballard is a British novelist I think one of the great writers of the twentieth century, actually, who wrote Empire of the Sun, sure. um, Crash, uh, many others. And uh, and High Rise is about this super high rise complex. It's almost like a vertical city. Actually, not unlike the Burj, which mm -hmm. is this the, now the world's tallest building, which just opened in Dubai. And it's about how that vertically integrated society that lives in the building collapses. It's sort of like, I call it a social disaster film. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, then I have a, a wonderful... Um, kids book series uh, called Tunnels that I'm involved with right now, which is more of, it's actually for a, a broader audience. It's more of a, um, a an adventure story. Mm -hmm. And um, it takes place underneath the streets of London. It's, it's really cool. And then most most recently, I've, I think I've got my claws into uh, a great science fiction novel. Really, I consider probably the most influential science fiction novel of the last 25 years, which is William Gibson's Neuromancer, mm -hmm. um, which really was the film, or the film, excuse me, the book that anticipated 
the internet and actually coined the term cyberspace. Um, and it's uh, it still remains very relevant and um, a very, very exciting project to be working on. Well, I want to thank you for spending some time with us uh, here in Philadelphia talking about this uh, this movie of yours, Splice and Vincenzo. It's, uh, it's a pleasure meeting you. Continued success. Best of luck. Oh, thank you. It was great. Thank you. You've been listening to Studio 89.7, a monthly program that focuses on newsmakers, celebrities, and authors. Please tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Studio 89.7, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.